Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Conquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've paired the frontmen for two gruff-sounding, kind of scary noise rock bands, but who, as it turns out, are a couple of sweethearts, David Yao and Andrew Falcus. Now, Yao began his music life in the Texas band Scratch Acid, which built its own legend before burning out in the mid-1980s, and then took his maniacal presence to the Jesus Lizard. That band built a following in the next dozen years, both for its confrontational music and for Yao's intensity in their live shows. You'd often find him drunk and naked, howling into the faces of stunned crowds. First you were scared, and then you loved it. The Jesus Lizard benefited from the grunge explosion in the mid-1990s, but they were always too weird and scary for the mainstream, even when they got an inexplicable major label deal with Capitol. You know, home of the Beatles. The Jesus Lizard split in 1999, but have reunited a few times since then, with demand for Yao's insanity peaking every few years. There hasn't been a Jesus Lizard show in a few years, though, or a reenactment, as he calls their reunion shows. But Yao has been out recently singing for the early noise punk band Flipper. You may also have seen him in bit parts in a few movies. The guy has led a varied, full life so far. Andrew Falcus, unfortunately, just had to postpone his own U.S. tour slash reenactment with his band McCluskey, which was originally active from the mid-1990s until 2006. An illness has affected his ability to sing, but he's planning to reschedule really soon. In the years after McCluskey, Falcus made similarly brutish but incredible records, both as the frontman of a band called Future of the Left and as a sort of solo artist under the name Christian Fitness. But as the legend of McCluskey snowballed and the 20th anniversary of their absolute classic of a second album, McCluskey Do Dallas, approached, he was coaxed to relaunch the name and to play those old songs again. Here's hoping for a quick recovery and new dates soon. And here's a little taste of what was certainly McCluskey's biggest song, the charmingly titled Lightsaber Cocksucking Blues. And flying is fearful of me And I covered my eyes when she told me the news Telling me I'm with my lightsaber cocksucking In this spirited conversation, Yao and Falcus start by talking about Falcus' recent battles with his own voice. They get into the nervousness of playing your first ever show as a singer. Yao dealt with those jitters by handing out tabs of acid to the crowd, while Falcus wore a yellow t-shirt. They talk about beer and whether Australian children should be forced to live in wells. Yao casually slaughters some sacred cows of the alternative rock world, and lest you think they're too tough for their own good, you should know that I edited out 15 minutes where they talked about how much they love their cats. Enjoy. So, well, it was good seeing you. Uh, two months ago, nearly. And then, and you're coming back in, what, a month or so? And not even that, so... I'm flying out a week on Wednesday to do the rearranged Oakland show because I lost my voice. I don't, my voice was in the process of, of being mislaid even during Los Angeles show. It's probably the most terrified I've ever been on stage that, to be uh, quite honest with you. Why was that? Because it, because your lack of voice? Yeah, I'd had like a bit of a cold the week before and then, you know, most likely the plane aircon combined with the, the pure glamour of Los Angeles. <laughs> the day we got there, we, we decided to go full British. Uh, we were staying in Koreatown and we decided to walk to Hollywood because we're British and, you know, we walk 
we walk places. Yes, yes. And we got stared at, and there was some, there was some pointing. A couple of people looked at us because you know it's not like Birmingham, Alabama. You get plenty of British people in Los Angeles, and obviously we stick out like a sore fucking thumb um, because we're walking. And I walked back, and I woke up the next morning. My throat had started to go. Went. Gone to the venue, and for us, that's a huge venue. It's a big deal. We're not used to playing rooms that size, so it's a real event. And even to play like a theatre where your band's name is up on like the board, I mean, that's probably only happened to me nine times or something. I went outside, I took a picture, you know, like, hey, this is really cool. And my throat just kept getting worse and worse. Oh, um, no. We did the sound check. I couldn't, literally couldn't, couldn't sing the songs. I went in the bathroom to try and warm up in private. You just couldn't sing. Uh, for the first time ever, experimented with tuning all of the guitars down half a step to see if that gave me any more range. That that w- made a really minor improvement. And then I had to go through the entire set and work out how to sing it because there were certain notes I couldn't sing. Like, for example, the uh, kids' party favourite, Lightsaber, Cocksucking Blues, starts right at the top of my range. It's like, eat what you are, it's right at the top. But I, those notes just weren't there. So I, I started to sing everything like a nursery rhyme. I had to sing like, eat what you are while you're falling apart. And it opened a can of worms. And there were other parts of the set I realised I couldn't sing the notes. So I just got off the mic and just hope hope that the crowd sang the words. We start with a quiet one, fuck this band. And I knew I could sing that because it's, it's more spoken and sung. And we were playing that song and I was looking up at this room and there's people on the balcony. The place wasn't so loud, but there's like 750 people there or something, which is a big deal for us. It's probably the third biggest ever McCluskey show at that, uh-huh. that stage. And I'm looking at this crowd of people who are very expecting. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. It was genuinely terrifying because for me, and I'm sure you can relate to this, when I'm on stage, I don't really have any nerves ordinarily to my stage and so to bring in that like the the jeopardy was it was fucking terrifying i understand the fear of that because uh when the jesus little was on tour years and years and years ago i think we had done 16 nights in a row and then we were playing at the cbgb's and i had a sore throat and at soundcheck all i could do was squeak it would just these little chirps would come out and um I remember Mac, our drummer, and I sitting in the van drinking beer after soundcheck, and I was crying because I was so scared. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I was going, "What? What are we gonna do? I don't. What? What am I gonna do? It's fucking CBGBs, and I can't even squeak." And um, then showtime came, and everything was fine. Adrenaline told your throat to fuck off. I, I guess so. I guess so. I'm largely very in the moment. I'm not usually, oh, did I leave the oven on kind of guy when I'm playing. You know, you can't can't kind of play the rock music, the kind of rock music I play, you play, to, and not be in that moment. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was absolutely, t- after the show, say 10 years or so ago, I would have come off stage and people were going, that was great. 10 years ago, so I would have stopped and explained to them why it hadn't been great and <laughs> destroyed their memories of the show. But now I've learned to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, that's I'll true. That's- and then go straight straight into the, the backstage bathroom. I came out Damien, who to anybody who A, doesn't know McCluskey in general, or B, doesn't know the newer iteration of it is the bass player and singer now in the band. He came into the dressing room having smoothly socialised, as he always does after a show. And he came, I came in and I just come out of the bathroom and went, 
have you been crying? I'm like, yeah, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just a little bit. Cause it was, it was, you know, the relief. It was the, the pressure that I'd at least got through those moments and people were saying it was really good and you can't help feeling as if you've conned people a little bit, you know, because, right. because yeah, it was good and it was a good show. And I was, I guess the adrenaline meant that I was reasonably funny in between songs. So that's helped by the fact that people really want you to be funny. You know, you've kind of, you've got a head start. It's like they've come to your birthday party or something. Right. But that, that definitely helped to mask the whole thing, but it was, it was genuinely terrifying. And, and as great as it was, here's the story, the anecdote we got out of it. I don't ever want to go through that again. The the very first show I ever sang at was a, a Scratch Acid show where we played in Austin, Texas. And the bill was um, Scratch Acid, The Butthole Surfers, The Big Boys, and TSOL. And I threw up all day long. I was just puking all day long, whether it was anything productive or not. I'd, <laughs> all day. And um, I was so scared. And uh, it helped, though, that we gave we gave away, like, I don't remember exactly how we distributed it, but we gave out 80 hits of acid that night. <laughs> so somehow that cushioned the blow, I suppose. I don't know how old you were when you did your first shows, but I was relatively late. I think I was like 22 because I didn't really want to be a singer. I'm not that person. I always loved music and I wanted to make it, but I didn't really want to be a singer. The first time I ever sang, uh, my brother, who's more of a metalhead than me, just took the piss out of the way I sang. I sang some lyrics and he was like, oh, that sounds great. You know, you sound, you sound great at the Elton John shows, that kind of vibe. But then I started a band just after college and it was, you know, pretty mainstream sounding stuff because that's what everybody in the band was into. And I was really nervous about the first show. But my focus was on what T-shirt I was going to wear on stage. I coped by focusing on a really minor, unimportant detail. I remember it was yellow. <laughs> that's the only thing I remember by that. And that's a very un-me choice. I'm not really a not really a yellow guy. You know, it was booked maybe two months in advance. And it's all I thought about. Every night I closed my eyes. And the idea that I'd be singing and have to say things in between songs was just... Terrif- terrifying and, and even to this day I have a lot of a lot of sympathy when you see youngish bands and they've got to say stuff in between songs like in the mid 2000s every band would go hey where and they'd give the name of the band and see everyone in the crowd's like we don't give a shit and they go you can find us here. and they'd always say myspace.com forward slash and then they'd give the band name and then they'd say this next song is about and you're like nobody cares what the song is about you've got to communicate what the song's about through through the medium of song that's why you're on a fucking stage mate Andy, I think I think uh, you're so smart and funny and clever and quick-witted. I think you your fears are unfounded, but I understand how they can be there. That's very kind of you to say, but I don't I'm not a natural I've become a performer by virtue of playing, but I'm right. not a natural somebody like Damien is a natural performer. Someone like John Chappell, who was the original bass player in McCluskey, total natural performer. Um Helson, who was a bass player in Future the Left, all those guys amazing natural performers for me i'm like a professional now you know i gave up smoking which is my dearest love so i could be a singer <laughs> um because a, a friend of mine said early on with mccluskey i was doing half hour shows my th- throat was packing up all the time and my friend who 
was like a vocal coach said, well, I've heard the way you sing is fine. You just got to give up smoking. I'm like, oh, what if I face Mecca? What if I do 20 press-ups before a show? What if I have pomegranate juice? It's like, you can do all of those things, but giving up smoking is 90% of the battle. Because I'm at that I'm at that awkward place where I'm shouting, but I am singing as well. And so sometimes like, you know, I'll do falsettos and things or whatever. And that's that that's the bits I find awkward. There's a McCleskey song called White Liberal and White Liberal Action. And the chorus, we don't do it in this iteration of the band, but the chorus goes, fuck you, because everyone's a hero. And I knew I could do the show that night if I could do the fuck like that. So I'd be walking around service stations like on tour, on tour with a drink going, fuck. And people would be, you know, trying trying to find a window where there weren't any old people or children around, you know, so I didn't cause some kind of psychologically damaging scene. If you see the children, at least go down, you know, close to them and make sure they understand what you're doing. Make sure they understand the context. Yeah. We got stuck in Quebec City one time. We played a show. Nobody was there. And after the show, we were going, what are we going to do? And nobody spoke English. And this guy was walking by and he heard us speaking English. And he goes, hey, are you guys Americans? He had long hair and he was in a metal band and he, we just hit it off right away. And um, he let us stay with him and his girlfriend for, I think, four days. They're all Francophiles in Quebec. And I said, what's the worst thing you can say to, uh, to these people? And he said, um, Tabernacle du Calice which means the chalice of the tabernacle. So Mac, <laughs> Mac and I went into downtown Quebec and we'd like get on a payphone and just go, Tabernacle du Calice, and hang up. Or like there was this uh, field trip of a bunch of little kids and we walked through the middle of them just going, Tabernacle du Calice, Tabernacle du Calice. And ever since all you've received is good luck from the universe. I've got a I've got a, a Jesus lizard related story for you. We did a show in Croatia in Zagreb. It was one of the best shows ever. And there's two Jesus lizard stories in a, in a short in a three day period here. It was a weird show. There was nobody there. Two minutes before the show, we went into the what was the dressing cupboard had a nip of Jameson, and we we're like, hey, you know, no one here, but we've never been to Croatia before. Let's just do a good show. We opened the door, and the place was just fucking rammed. It was one of the best shows ever. We ended up drinking in the park till five. We're not usually that kind of band. We like a drink, but wild misadventure really isn't in our characters. But the promoter that night told me a story about when he was in the, uh, I'm going to get the army wrong now, but I think it was the Bosnian, during the Bosnian war, whatever army he was in, he sneaked over the perimeter fence of the army base he was in to come and see you guys play um, in Zagreb. He would have been shot if he was discovered. So that that's my first Jesus lizard story. But then from, from Zagreb, we traveled to Stockholm. <laughs> so you can see, the agent really wasn't doing a great job in terms of the routing. It was about 3,000 kilometers. We did it in two days. Maybe it isn't 3,000. Maybe it's two and a half. Jesus days. Christ. So we did this show. This is a, the middle anecdote in this tiresome list of anecdotes. There was, we got there and we were flying out to the States a couple of days later. And we said, uh, oh, let's maybe just do 40 minutes or so. You know, we've traveled 3,000 kilometers, whatever it is. And let's just do 45 minutes rather than the usual hour and 15. There were four people there to see us. And one of the people there is a Finnish girl called Rebecca, I think her name is. And she came up to me and she said, me and my friend, we have traveled by like plane and sea and coach to come and see you. It's a 32 hour round trip to see you. And we're like, oh, I mean, you can't, 
not that it's possible to half-arse it, but you can't even play a, a, show, a show in those circumstances. But anyway, the next night we were in Oslo, and you guys had played there like the week before, and we had 11 people at this at our show. And the whole night, the promoter just kept saying, I do not understand it. Last week for the Jesus Lizard, we were packed all every five minutes. But last week, the Jesus Lizard, I'm like, they're, they're a much better known band than us. That, that's your expert. There is the, there's the explanation, you know. He kept coming to the dressing room and opening the door and going, by this stage, <laughs> by this stage, there were 300 people here. And I'm like, yeah, still just six. He's like, yes. He's like, I think I know everybody by name tonight. I'm like, well, that's just fantastic. We haven't been back to Scandinavia since anyway, after those two, after those two experiences. So thanks for that. That's what a weird thing for a guy to do. Can you hold on just a moment? I'm gonna get a beer. I'm gonna get a non-alcoholic beer, but I'm gonna I'm gonna join you in that. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House Podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Hey, TalkHouse listeners, it's Josh Modell. Instead of encouraging you to listen to podcasts today, I'm here to encourage you to read something great. The particular something I have in mind is the second issue of The TalkHouse Reader, the print zine spearheaded by our fantastic music editor, Annie Fell. This issue is focused on the intersection of food and music, and it features contributions from Maddie Matheson, Coleman Domingo, Squirrel Flower, Sam Evian, the Blessed Madonna, and more. There are pieces about eating while on tour, the gentrification of food, cooking as a creative catalyst, and much, much more. You can order a copy today, along with the first issue, at store.talkhouse.com. Please do check it out. What's your brand of beer this evening? Or this afternoon? Uh, Modelo. I used to be a devout Budweiser guy. I could I could recite the thing. I'll, I'll do it. It says, uh, this is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer which costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beechwood aging produces a taste, a smoothness, and a drinkability. You will find it no other beer at any price. And so there was that, and I had my Budweiser sweater and a Budweiser neon and all that shit. And then before... 
the second to last election when uh, Donald Trump became president, I was in Austin, Texas, and there was a big billboard that said, Budweiser, make happy hour great again. And um, I said, okay, fuck you. I threw away all my shit. I have never, will never buy an Anheuser-Busch product again. And so since then, I've been drinking Mexican lagers and Mexican pilsners, which I like a lot. And they're just very simple, nice beers and fuck Budweiser. I'm definitely a pilsner guy. If I need a meal, I'll eat food before I go out. A lot of ales, you know, it's infused with cinnamon. It's infused with the souls of dead sailors. I'm like... Listen, I've had a lot of dead sailors already today. I just want to to drink. I like to be refreshed by a beer rather than to think about a country garden or it seems like band world, everybody, everybody is genetically predisposed to drink IPAs nonstop. I don't get it. It's like Husker Du or Sonic Youth. Like, how did they ever get so popular? And it was just because they toured nonstop and they ran themselves down people's throat. It's like, how can you really like that? And like those IPAs... You're fooling yourself. You don't like it. It tastes like dirt. I suppose when I'm out, I like to be drinking and socializing as opposed to be thinking about, you know, how, how this guy, how this guy who wears a hat indoors managed to manage to source so many fucking lemons. I realize again, it just sounds like a, a man yells at cloud thing, but sometimes it does confuse me a bit. I'm sure with, with the Jesus lizard, I'm sure your shows were big enough in and of themselves to actually make, if not a living, then certainly to make money from shows, I would assume. Although, I'm, is that a fantasy? Well, yeah, uh, it, it became that way. Certainly the first few years, it was not like that. When we do those reenactment shows now, the original impetus or the catalyst for it is this some one single big show where they play us a shit ton of money and then we just tack on a few extras. A few around so. it for shits and giggles. It's one thing, because when we started doing these shows properly again in 2019, the, the impetus of it wasn't money. But what I definitely found is that if uh, when you've got a record out, there's this expectation that you kind of need to do shows to quote unquote promote a record, which, um, and so promoters know that. So they work, I guess, to certain models or structures about the way they'll piece a tour together. Whereas I found with these McCluskey shows, since it wasn't a ongoing band or whatever, we didn't have to do any shows. So someone would come and say, do you want to do a show here for this much money? And you just go, ah, nah, don't worry about it. But then somebody would contact with just stupid money, the kind of money that somebody in my financial position just literally couldn't say no to. Um, you just go, okay, I can make enough money to live for three weeks from one show. Yeah, I'll do I'll do that rather than have to go and work in a call center or something. Of course I will. I mean, to have the best time in the world and to be paid for it is, is ridiculous. But there's still something for me having basically lived on poverty money until three years ago. I mean, I'm not rolling in it, but I'd be paid adequately for shows where I still expect somebody's going to come and take all the money away because, because that's what happens in the record business. People come and yeah. go, oh, that money's actually mine. Oh, that money's actually mine. And you go, ah, okay. But it's it's actually incredible to go around being a being a professional band. When we first toured Australia in 2000, McCluskey in 2002 or three, the only money I made on that uh, tour, when we were flying from Heathrow, they asked us if we wouldn't mind going on a later flight uh, because our flight was full. And they said they would pay us 150 pounds each 
if we would get on a flight three hours later and we got paid 150 pounds each. You were sponsored by the airline. I was sponsored by British Airways. Yeah. It's just a fantastic moment. David Sims, our bass player, was quite the list keeper. And we have uh, every every show that we ever played. Oh, my God. With uh, every uh, the opening band and who headlined and all that stuff. There's about, I think, like 1,500 shows or something like that. Oh, that's but incredible. anyway, in the original list, he included how much money we got paid. We didn't put it in the book. And in retrospect, I really wish we had. Because there's nothing embarrassing, you know, because like, like I said, those those reenactment shows, we got a bunch of money. I don't care if somebody knows that, but the entertaining parts would be, you know, like Ottawa, when we got paid $13.75, or in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, when the guy said he paid us, but he didn't. And, you know, shit like that, or like when we're eating mustard sandwiches and not knowing how we're going to get to the next town. Did you ever have to do that cliched move of having to like march the promoter to an ATM to get money that he promised you. I think, I think David may have had to do something along those lines. I never, I never dealt with him after the show, after the show, I was just getting fucked up. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. I don't think anybody sees David Yao on stage and says, I've got to get that guy into streamline my admin. You know, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think it's the focus. We had to do it once a feature the left in, Edinburgh, but the guy, the, not that many people turned up for the show. And I think the fee was like 600 pounds or something. He was a nice guy. I don't want to cartoon him. But then at the end of our show, he was like, ah, oh, we didn't have that many people in. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to make a guarantee. And we were like, um, sorry, but it's called a guarantee. And uh, I've just looked it up in the fucking dictionary. And it means it means that we need that money because we've we've budgeted for it. Do you, uh, did you ever see the Seinfeld show over there? Oh, yes. I got into Seinfeld relatively late. Have you seen the episode about the automobile rental? That's, that's, a, that's a fantastic one. And it's like, that, it's like that, you know, I'm sorry, I can't make the guarantee. It's like, uh, well, let me tell you, explain to you what a reservation is. And she goes, sir, I know what a reservation is. I go, I don't think you do. Actually, the first time I saw the Jesus Lizard was at the Reading Festival in like 1990. I'm going to guess here. 94, 95, I think. That made sense. I didn't really know the band then, and I saw from a distance, but it was it was absolutely insane, of course. It was pretty early on in the day as well, like about two in the afternoon, something like that. Who else, who else was on the bill? Like Helmet, maybe? Uh, Rollins? I know one of them was headlined by your favorite band, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Love me some chili peppers. <laughs> Man, that in the United States, we never had a bus. We always had a van and a rental van or something like that. But in Europe, we would very often have a bus. And that year that the Chili Peppers headlined, I don't know why, but our bus was the party bus. And everybody was coming in and off our in and out of our, our bus. And uh, I think I did every drug I've ever done that day. And I was so fucked up the next morning when they were supposed to go through. I think we're going to France. And they couldn't, they couldn't wake me up to... Show you to be presented to the uh, customs official. They had to carry me like a roll of carpet. And I had wet myself and my pants were soaking. And, and they just needed me to open my eyes for the customs official. So they're smacking me. And eventually I opened my eyes. But um, 
yeah, boy, oh boy, that uh, that was that was something else. Wow. To be honest with you, the, the red hot chili peppers aren't really up my fucking strata, but the, the Smashing Pumpkins always the band which just mystified the living fuck out of me. Like not not to the point of hatred, to the point of I don't know, just low key low key amusement. But I think they played one of those years as well. The Reading Festival was actually my uh, inspiration for getting into music or rather getting into wanting to do it because 90% of the bands at festivals sound like pure shit. And just remember seeing so many bad bands with such such shit patter as well. We, we used to take bets on which American band would say, hey, what what are you guys reading at the Reading Festival? It was, it was like, which, <laughs> which, which, shit, which shit skate punk band is going to think that they're the first people that this joke has occurred to. And it was it was usually Pennywise or someone like that, you know, some some band. Some band that my that my brother had made us go and see. So I'm sure I would have done that had I not lived in the Midlands in the 70s, you know. Oh, you lived in the Midlands in the 70s, right? Yeah, I lived in Oxfordshire for four years. Oh, right. My father was in the Air Force. He was stationed at uh, Upper Hayford. Yeah, the first place we lived in was uh, Bladen right by uh, Blenheim Palace and where Winston Churchill is buried. We lived like 100 yards from Winston Churchill's grave. That was cool. Yeah. That's when I first got started smoking. Oh. And wh- are you in Cardiff right now? No, I'm in Bristol now. I live in Bristol. Oh, really? I lived in, So I'm from the Northeast, um, but I went to Cardiff to go to college and then just stayed there because of a girlfriend and then the band was just based there. And then me and my wife, because she works for a music college, we moved to uh, London just after our daughter was born, like, what was that, five years ago? Um, and then we were there for three and a half years. We were there through the height of the pandemic, which is over now, as in case you hadn't noticed. Um, <laughs> and we moved to Bristol um, uh, a year gone March. It's pretty good. Got a lot of hills. Smell of weed is everywhere. I walk around the harbour every day. I'm not saying this in a censorious way, by the way. I've I've more than fucking dabbled in my life, but it is it is inescapable over here. It's quite starving. And the hills, well, put it this, they're good for they're good for cardio. And they're genuinely, genuinely, there's a lot of good good music around here. And and a lot of bad music, obviously. Idol idols are from Bristol, aren't they? Idols are from Bristol. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Um no uh bass player Dev quite well. He's one of Damien's best friends. Oh, oh, that's nice. Yeah, bald guy, big beard, a trooper. I'm a, I'm a big fan. I'm going to give him a solid 9 out of 10. I'm not going to give him a 10 because you don't want him getting complacent, do you? Yeah, that's absurd. You don't want to give him a big head. But no, they're, yeah, they're from here. And um, they've kind of attracted a lot of bands here and stuff. Well, success attracts people, doesn't it? it um, yeah. It, it like pulls people in. And they're, I mean, for a band who play rock music, they're about as... Well, they're about as big as it gets without without doing Super Bowl commercials or whatever. I suppose. I mean, they're right. pretty huge over here, and they're pretty they're pretty big in the states as well, aren't they? Yeah, they do well. They do well. I have a dear old Scottish friend, and earlier you you said uh, when you were playing this show and you guys stayed in Koreatown, my buddy Hunter, who's the Scottish guy. He'd come to visit Los Angeles, and he'd never been in the States before. And I gave him a tour of some of the areas and stuff. And at one point, we were in Koreatown, and he goes, uh, so what part of town is this then? And I said, uh, this is uh, Koreatown. And he goes, Korea opportunities, and it wasn't ever knock. 
and I thought that was so great because there's no way on earth that an American would ever come up with that idea. Yeah. It's a pun which really only a Scottish accent could could alight upon, isn't it? Yeah. 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 He'd come to visit. And um, one night, uh, he and um, our friend Kelly and my girlfriend, we were day drinking the whole day. And the next morning, we were sort of, you know, sitting around and Kelly was reading the back of a headache remedy. And it said, do not take if you have a black stool or if you have blood in your stool. And Hunter immediately said, well, when can you take it then? <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> Self-deprecating, dry, quick, hilarious. I love you people. Well, you know, when you live in a land where rain is a constant, you have to find solace somehow. I really like Yorkshire, but because of the accent, everything sounds sarcastic. Everything I mean, declarations, what, everything sounds sarcastic. What is the Yorkshire accent? Can oh, you do I, a Yorkshire accent? I'm not sure I can do the Yorkshire accent. I'm used to bullying my wife with my bad Australian accent. I do a thing where we, um, Ian, who is the other guitar player in uh, Future the Left, when we play live now, he's, he also plays in a band called Art Brew, where we basically just bully her by doing Australian accents. We we came up with this idea that, she's, um, that all Australian people get trapped down wells um, so uh, we'll always go, help me, Falcon. I'm trapped down a bloody well and I need to bloody get out. I think at first it pissed her off, but she's embraced it now. You know, she really, she enjoys the, and I tell Ella, who's a five-year-old sometimes, I'm like, yeah, it's, darling, it's a bit of a rite of passage, actually. Every, every Australian has to be trapped down a well for three months sometime in the first 12 years of their life. They have to learn to survive down. They have to select a well in which, you know, there's enough biodiversity for them to survive. They have to, you know, learn to make fire, fashion, clothing and or, you know, bedding from the, you know, the moss they find at the bottom of the well. And I don't know, I, I, think, I think my daughter is intelligent enough now to know when daddy's talking shit. And she's five? She's five, yeah. Maybe she thinks, as somebody who's half Australian, that at one stage or another, she's going to have to uh, go, go over to Australia and do a national service down the well or something, I hope. I hope, I hope that's not the case, the poor darling. It's enough to think about worrying about what, what frozen sticker set she's got at the minute. Um, but I don't know, maybe one day she will be trapped down a well. And if she is trapped <laughs> down a well, she, she's at least going to be psychologically prepared for it. Um, so is that good parenting? I'm not sure. I must caveat all this with the fact that I hope, I hope she's never trapped down a well, unless she can somehow use it to her advantage. I'm having more fun than I've had this year. Andy Falcos is an amazing motherfucker. <laughs> Why the non-alcoholic beer at home? You don't drink at home? Uh, no, I just, I just try not to drink too much at home. And after our conversation, I'm probably going to go to, I'm, go to the gym for a little bit even though it's quite late at night it's just come out my window to go to the gym um and i i'm on steroids at the minute uh because of my oh, okay um so i can drink it's not going to cause any damage but it, it might the steroids from working i'm happy to report though that my tinnitus has got a lot well i'm happy for my own sake my tinnitus has got a lot better in the last 24 hours so it looks like it was probably due to an infection rather than, you know, some permanent damage or whatever. Because I'm, oh, I'm, very wow. I'm very careful with stuff. I wear plugs and things. I spend about 20% of my life lecturing young musicians on why, on why they should wear earplugs. The last week has just been like living, living in an environment where somebody's rustling a plastic bag next to, my, next to both ears for the last week. Really, 
very disorientating um, and scary. My gran had really bad tinnitus and she was a fucking insane person. Um, yeah, people people have killed themselves because yeah. of tinnitus. I've had tinnitus since my mid-30s. In my left ear, I had an allergic reaction to um, ibuprofen. That's uh, like a wisdom, a root canal problem, and I had to take it for ages. But that's it's an, it's an entirely bearable level of it. I like probably to drink a little bit too much, so I try and distract myself. It's one of the reasons I started exercising and running, because especially when I was touring, you know what it's like. You get to a venue, there's... Uh, there's there's beer there, <laughs> free beer, and it's very easy to slip into the routine. I'm somebody I don't have the constitution. If when I smoked cigarettes, when I drank, uh, it would make me iller than everybody else. If I eat the same amount of food as everybody else, I turn into a fat cunt, and they're all fine. My, my body <laughs> just I need I need to be disciplined with it, and the, if I am disciplined, I can still enjoy beers i'm more of a few beers a day guy as opposed to a getting fucked up guy i've never been on one occasion when i think i was about 23 i took my trousers off and walked into the middle of a lake when i was <laughs> when i was drunk but generally speaking i'm not a one for crazy misadventure um i just don't it doesn't come naturally to me i i don't hold that against you realize i'm talking to somebody for whom you know you've probably got so many misadventures that may be true but i'm i'm also a relatively responsible person i have a job and i hold it down and Mm. i do freelance work from home Mm. and i make myself do what i have to do i think i'm a binge drinker i need to be professional on tour Three, three beers a night that's the that's the extent of it any anything more than that and i'm just i don't know i moan on and i'm miserable and and i get on people's tits and i'm i think i'm enough of a prima donna without having the uh the hangover remix getting getting on people's nerves are you a pretty you're not a prima donna i i think i i try not to be i try i've, I've you know obviously i've had friends who have had those tendencies i the thing which irritates me is I don't like it when venues aren't venues in the sense that I don't like it when they're not set up professionally for bands in the sense that if I'm on that stage, I need proper monitoring so I can hear what I'm doing. Um, partly because I enjoy the music I make. Uh, I, 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 I do play it predominantly for myself, um, but also it's it's to maintain my throat. Like if I can hear what I'm saying and I don't fuck myself up, um, and I can be a bit, I can be a bit pushy when that's not the case. Some people are DIY and it's not a synonym for doing a half-assed job. You know, do, you, you, there are people for whom those kind of scenes are just excuses for not doing things properly. And I, I realize sometimes there's a lack of resources, but it isn't always about resources. It's about attitude and professionalism. You know? That's not prima donna. Yeah. Professionalism. There's there's nothing wrong with professionalism. Like when you go to a show and they, it's ev- actually everything is exactly as it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It's so silky smooth and beautiful and wonderful and really creates a, the perfect environment. Yeah, because for me, then the chaos, the rock and roll gets to happen on the stage as opposed to as opposed to going to the venue manager and going, this is cool, but you know, could we actually have a room to put this stuff in or this theoretical block of speaker I've got in front of me, would it be possible to have some sound coming out from it? You know, so I, <laughs> so I can, so I can hear what's happening. I can also, um, on that last tour we were doing, we got some like pistachio nuts on the rider. This is, this story's a rock and roll. It's definitely going to blow your mind. 
Um, and uh, we we in the van, we had a box with all our leftover rider. You know, there was some salsa in there and a couple of beers and some waters and a thing of pistachio nuts. And there wasn't like a bin container. So I put a, a, a pistachio nut shell back in the pistachio nut uh, uh, like container. And Damien was like, who the fuck? Who the fuck put this in the pistachio nuts? I'm like, well, there's not, a, there's not a bin. He's like, you're putting used pistachio nut shells back in the bag. I'm like, yeah, but there's no bin. I'm not just going to throw it in the box with all the other food. And he's like, prison's too fucking good for you, man. Like, prison's too fucking good for you. And that's probably the worst argument we've had as a band. So one night, because I get silly sometimes after shows, I had a bag of uh, uh, chili cheese Fritos. Yeah. And I was just being silly. I was licking the flavor, the the powder off all the th- chips and putting them back onto, onto a, the dashboard of, that, on the van. That's another level. And I did that to the whole mm. the whole bag. I, I licked all the Fritos and put it back. And the next morning when we got up in our hotel, uh, the van was not there. And I said, where's the van? And I think somebody said that Dwayne had taken it to get an oil change. And I went, oh, wonderful. Okay. And so the, he showed back up after the oil change and all the Fritos were gone. And I said, oh man, did you throw those away? Thanks a lot. And he goes, no, I ate them. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, why Why would you eat Fritos that are just sitting there on the dash? That's absolutely fantastic. So all you wanted was the coloring. You just wanted the colorings and the uh, the E numbers, but <laughs> but you, for, you forego the, the complex carbohydrates which were contained. <laughs> Which you're a man who you know what you want from your uh, from your snacks. That's great. We had a, an incident once in um, near Dresden, former East Germany. We got stopped by the police, pulled over. This was McCleskey. Towards the end, as this story indicates, in the very low level, passive aggressive way, which we specialised in. Uh, every night uh, from the rider, all of the uh, what we call fun sized chocolates have been disappearing. I'd get off stage. I'm like, I want a fucking Milky Way. Where the fuck, you know, uh, anyway. And so the police searched us and they turned over the whole van, the drugs um, and, you know, various paraphernalia. And they went through everybody's bags and John Chapel. they opened his bag and they poured it out. And all of these fun sized chocolates just went all over the ground. And we were like, you absolutely, you, you dog rapist, you fucking, you stood there. We believed that you didn't know where these chocolates had gone and here they are. That's hilarious. It was actually a beautiful moment. I think he was genuinely embarrassed for, for, for five minutes, but I don't think that quite gets up to the, to the, uh, to the, the licking, the, uh, the flavoring of an entire bag of, um, of corn chips. It was just something I, I, hadn't done so i thought i'd try it no but i mean i mean frankly though what you did is is quirky and weird what he did by eating those chips that's just crazy but it is but anyway as long as as long as everybody had a good time i suppose when do you leave uh i leave on thanksgiving fly into oakland on the 24th because of what happened with my throat last time i'm flying into oakland a couple of days early um get, staying in like the the airport like a, a cheap hotel just for two days and i'm gonna sit in the hotel room and sip water and be absolutely ready for those shows because i do not want to cancel any more shows and like literally financially would absolutely destroy us that that's a good plan i meant to ask you is there any possibility of any more jesus lizard shows in the future or is that is that goose cooked now 
I finally learned to quit saying never because, I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe we did that first reenactment tour. And I think we've done three now. I've got to say, I love the fact that you say reenactment because it, it, it literally implies putting on a costume as opposed to reunion or whatever. A reenactment is like, right. Yeah, it's, it's right. We're like a tribute band, yeah. but we know the songs better than anybody else. So yeah. we can, we're, we're a really good version of the Jesus Lizard. <laughs> so yeah, the, there's the possibility, I think. Um, we're pretty old now, man. Uh, Dwayne is 64. I'm 62. If there is another reenactment tour, it'll probably be the, the only one. Ideally hope so. I met you when we did a McCluskey show in Schubers when I think you were living in Chicago at the same time. Yes. I, yes. Believe, I believe drink had been taken that evening. You were pretty terrifying, I've got to be honest with you. You were very, you were very drunk. I don't mean terrifying in in a uh in I felt worried, but you were you were very, very drunk. You know, very drunk, very complimentary. Obviously, you could tell that action followed you around, put it that way. Mis mis misadventure followed you around is the, the look in your eyes, which says stuff stuff could happen here. So be 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 prepared. I like I'm, I'm flattered that that happened. Yeah. Andy, I just have I just have a boatload of respect for you. I just think the the things that I've heard that you do are really good. And I have just you impress me as a awfully intelligent feller and it's really fun to talk to you and i told my girlfriend before we did this thing i said i'm kind of nervous to talk to andy for an hour because uh, he's a lot sharper and quicker and funnier than i am that's that's very flattering there's very few there's lots of music i like but there's very few bands that i love and the jesus wow. lizard would definitely be one of those bands so you know, oh thank you very much yeah there's lots of bands i like and i think most bands, even of an alternative bent, have a couple of good songs, but there's very few bands where you hear the band and you know that you know the band straight away. But what is interesting is when McCluskey Do Dallas came out, people compared it to the Jesus Lizard a lot. But at that time, we didn't really know the Jesus Lizard very well. You know, we'd heard a couple of things. I guess it was just because the bass was distorted and it was slightly obnoxious sounding at times but right. for me and feel free to have a completely different opinion mccluskey is a very loud pop band it's pretty much verse chorus verse chorus whereas i mean the jesus lizard songs might have been written with that understanding but they sure don't sound like pop songs to me you know it's like uh they're they're pieces of music where there happens to be some somebody puking their guts out in this kind of in a loose singing style. Absolutely, yeah. You know. I mean, we generally have that verse-chorus-verse-chorus verse, chorus, uh, structure too. It's to the point where oftentimes it, it annoyed me. It's like, we don't have to do that, you know? Right. <laughs> we could just do the same thing all the way through or whatever. When I listen to the Jesus Lizard, I don't think about all of the individual parts, and that's how I know it works for me. When I don't like music, or maybe when it's not having... The, an emotional resonance with me. I start and notice the bass line or I'll think, ah, oh, the vocalist came in late there. Why did he do that? Do you know what I mean? Whereas the Jesus Lizard has a, a force to it. It's like an avalanche, I suppose. You know, it's like being, it's like being overwhelmed. You were on the Shellac curated ATP. Had you met Steve before that? Yeah, we'd recorded with him. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. That was the first show we played since we'd broken up in 99. And uh, oh, I didn't realize it, that. I didn't. It was so weird, Andy. I mean, it was so emotional. All our girlfriends and wives came with us. Mac brought his whole family. It had been 10 years since we broke up. I don't know, man. It was... Uh, it was incredible. It was really, really incredible. Botch, our booking agent, said he cried at the show. Whitney, our sound man, said he cried. That's lovely. That's really lovely. I like before the show. I told Ellen, my girlfriend, I said I have no idea what you know. I probably not. I don't. Maybe I'm not going to crowd surf tonight. And I think within thirty seconds of the yeah. first note, yeah, yeah. it <laughs> was straight in. I remember. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> We'll catch up in LA, but this honestly, this has yeah. been, been an absolute pleasure, David. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Talkhouse podcast, and thanks to Andrew Falcus and David Yao for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow Talkhouse on your favorite podcasting service and check out all the goodness at talkhouse.com. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the Talkhouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.